crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When a 28-year-old woman was viciously stabbed to death outside of her New York apartment, it wasn't huge news. Murders happen every day, especially in the Empire City. But two weeks later, the New York Times ran a front-page story with an explosive headline. 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. Apathy at stabbing of Queens woman shocks inspector. And just like that, the name Kitty Genovese became synonymous worldwide with apathy. It was proof that we live in such a heartless and selfish world that an innocent woman's cries for help can literally be ignored by people who just can't be bothered to get involved. At about 3 a.m. on March 13, 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was brutally stabbed to death outside her apartment building. A young woman named Kitty Genovese was stalked and stabbed to death in the quiet Kew Gardens section of Queens, New York. Her assailant twice left the scene and returned to continue the assault. 38 witnesses watched from their apartment windows, neither coming to her aid nor calling the police as she cried for help. It turns out the story wasn't quite 100% right, but it still nailed the basic truth of Kitty's murder, that she had screamed and screamed for help while a man, a complete stranger who had stalked her as prey, stabbed her repeatedly, attempted to rape her, and finally killed her. The attack lasted 30 agonizing minutes. Regardless of whether Kitty's neighbors in Kew Gardens really were as apathetic as the New York Times reported, her 1964 death not only helped create the 911 system in America, but it also became a symbol of the responsibility we have as members of a society to help each other out. The story of Kitty's death was so horrific that for more than 50 years, it overshadowed her too short life. And it's a life worth talking about. Kitty was born Catherine Susan Genovese in July 1935. She was the oldest of five children, born to Vincent and Rachel Genovese. In a documentary he helped make called The Witness in 2015, Kitty's brother Bill said she was a jokester, a goofball. But she was also incredibly bright and earnest. The best part was talking late into the night. Kitty seemed to know about everything. She was attractive, a chatterbox, with her dark hair cut short and kind of tousled, longer than a pixie, shorter than a bob. If you know the 1960s show Laughin', think young Goldie Hawn. She was popular at the all-girls Catholic high school she attended, where she was named Class Cut-Up her senior year. The Genovese family, by the way, no relation to the mobster clan by the same name, lived in New York City until Kitty graduated high school. After that, her parents decided to move away, thinking the city had become too violent. 
Kitty was legally an adult, and she loved this city, so she opted to stay behind. She stayed close with her family, coming home most weekends, sometimes with friends in tow. Brother Bill had been six when the family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, and for the next 10 years, Kitty was something like a parent and a friend all rolled into one. She seemed so worldly, so knowledgeable. She had gotten married as a teen, but annulled the nuptials within a few months. She worked some odds and ends jobs that she didn't love, as a secretary, a waitress, a hostess, some clerical gigs. Finally, she found that she really liked working in bars. And because she was bright and organized, she climbed the ladder at Ev's 11th Hour in Hollis, Queens, becoming a bar manager. She worked hard and earned decent money, too, about $750 a month, which would translate to more than $6,000 in today's money. She was feisty. Her male colleagues called her one of the boys. She actually got arrested in 1961 for being the go-between for her bar patrons to place bets with bookies. John Solomon, a filmmaker who worked with Bill Genovese on The Witness, said Kitty was a remarkably independent woman. She drove a red Fiat convertible, managed a bar made three times what the men she knew made. Though her parents worried about her living single in the big city, she wasn't really alone. She had a roommate named Marianne Zelanko. While Kitty introduced Marianne as a friend to her family, in reality, the two were a couple. They had met at a bar a few years prior and quickly fell in love. Kitty was part of the thriving underground gay scene in New York City. This is Kevin Cook, author of Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America, speaking at the Kansas City Public Library in 2014. We go see the Folkies in Greenwich Village and also go to underground gay bars, which were completely illegal, run by the mob, winked at by the police department. It was a dangerous time to be gay, even in Greenwich Village. This is five years before the Stonewall riots. This is a time when Kitty and her partner, who was a woman named Marianne Zelanko, Kitty and her partner didn't hold hands, I mean, even in Greenwich Village, for fear of being beaten up. There are gangs of guys who go out, quote unquote, queer hunting, and they would like to beat you up. Despite having to keep the real nature of their relationship a secret, Kitty and Marianne were a typical young couple. They worked days and spent nights together. They bar hopped and hit clubs. One time they argued, and to make up for it, Kitty bought Marianne a little puppy that they named Andrew. In 2004, Marianne told the Chicago Tribune, quote, We just hit it off. We meshed. I'm very quiet, and she talked a lot. We both had struggles with our sexuality, as did many people back then. We had a quick bond. End quote. Marianne would call the year that the two lived in an apartment above a bar in Kew Gardens one of the happiest years of her life. That came to an end around 4 a.m., March 14, 1964. Marianne had gone out earlier bowling with some friends that night. She'd come home and gone to sleep. It wasn't unusual for Kitty to hang out at her workplace, Ebb's Bar, until closing time or even after. Kitty was always cautious about it. You learn to be careful when you're a woman walking alone late at night in a big city. There was a back way to reach her apartment a bit faster than the front, but she eschewed that because the front faced the street and, therefore, was lit by streetlights. 
It's always safer in the light, right? That night, Marianne was awakened by a knock at her door. She answered in a stupor. It was the police. They asked about her roommate, about Kitty, and told her there'd been an attack. Marianne was whisked to the morgue where she was led to a gurney that had been covered in a white sheet. Someone pulled the sheet back, and Marianne saw her girlfriend's lifeless face. She muttered an identification, but was still in such shock that when investigators told her it was time to leave the morgue, she refused. No, she said. I'm waiting for Kitty. She's coming with us. In the initial news coverage, Kitty was demoted to a barmaid. No mention of her managing there. A story in the New York Daily News read, quote, Catherine Kitty Genovese, 5 feet 1 and 105 pounds, was stabbed eight times in the chest and abdomen and four times in the back, and she had three cuts on her hands, probably inflicted as she tried to fight off her attacker near her apartment in an alleyway at 8270 Austin Street at Lefferts Boulevard, Kew Gardens. Late yesterday, police said the 30 detectives assigned to the case had not come up with any clues or a possible motive for the savage murder. End quote. Investigators tried to piece together Kitty's night, hoping they could dig up some clues that way. But it was a dead end. Kitty had worked at Ebb's Tavern until 6 p.m., then gone to dinner with a guy friend. They returned to the bar about midnight, after which the guy left. Kitty stayed at the bar until 3 a.m. when she drove her little red Fiat sports car the seven miles home, but was attacked and killed before she ever reached her door. There was nothing in Kitty's night that was out of the ordinary. And the dinner date, he was of course checked out, but he had an alibi. Police were at a loss. They started to interview neighbors, asking if they saw or heard anything. And it turned out a lot of them had. They found out that Kitty's screams had awoken several neighbors in the night. Some of them even made out her words. I've been stabbed. Save me. Save me. Cops tallied 38 people who heard enough that had any one of them investigated further, they might have been able to intervene and save the girl's life. But according to police logs, no one did. Not until after the killer had left Kitty, breathing her last breaths. More than a week after the stabbing, a respected journalist at the New York Times named A.M. Rosenthal had lunch with the police commissioner. By his own telling, Rosenthal had recently been appointed the paper's metropolitan editor, and he figured that if he had his own relationships with potential sources, it'd make him a better editor. Over this lunch with the police commissioner, Rosenthal asked about an arrest that made headlines a couple of days prior. There was a man named Winston Mosley who had been picked up robbing a house, and he had confessed to the recent murder of Barbara Kralik a 15-year-old girl who'd been stabbed in 1963 in her own bedroom while her family slept in rooms nearby. The confession was a bit of a head-scratcher, though, because another man, 18-year-old Alvin Mitchell, had also confessed to killing Kralik, and even though he quickly recanted and said that he only confessed because he'd been threatened by police, no one was willing to reconsider that he might not be their guy. Rosenthal asked Commissioner Michael Joseph Murphy about the double confessions, which Murphy shrugged off. If you want a real story, he said, 
You should look at the Kew Garden stabbing. 37 people did nothing, and the 38th, the guy who finally called police, did it too late to save her. The commissioner said, I've been in this business a long time, but this beats everything. These uh, talks were usually off the record, but Commissioner Murphy was willing enough to uh, let Rosenthal go after this one, that the squad car takes him back to work. He picks out a reporter named Martin Gansberg and says, Martin, go out to Kew Gardens and see what you can find out about this case. Gansberg reported the story for three days. He knocked on doors. People told them what he saw. Police gave him the call logs and some reports. The story Gansberg wrote began like this. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Reading the lead there was Joe DeMay, a lawyer and historian who was interviewed by Kitty's brother in The Witness. He's lived in Kew Gardens since 1974 and has pretty much been investigating Kitty's death ever since. Gansberg's story ran on the front page of the New York Times and sent shockwaves across the country. No art ran alongside it, but soon, Kitty's photo, a black and white image in which her hair is tousled and her expression kind of ethereal, which turns out to be ironic because the image is actually her mugshot from those gambling charges in 1961, ran in newspapers nationwide. The response was deafening. How could we as a society have become so cold, so complacent, that we could turn our backs on a woman screaming for help? Mosley wasn't initially a suspect. It was actually his propensity to burgle that got him arrested. Around 3 p.m. March 18th, so in broad daylight, that's how brazen this guy was, a homeowner on 102nd Street noticed someone walking into his neighbor's house. Because he didn't recognize the man, and because he was a good neighbor, he called the police. Patrolman Daniel Dunn cuffed Mosley and brought him in. Kitty's neighbors, Hadn't gotten a great look at her attacker, but they gave police enough to make them wonder when they saw Mosley. He was the same build and height as the Slayer, and he drove the same kind of car, a late-model, light domestic compact. Mosley confessed to the Barbara Kralik killing without much prodding. After that, it was like the floodgates opened. He didn't just confess to the one murder. He actually confessed to three separate murders, including Kitty's, which he said was his most recent. First, he confessed to killing Barbara, a confession police didn't want to believe because they already had charged a suspect in the case. Next, Mosley confessed to killing 24-year-old Annie Mae Johnson. The coroner in that case had ruled she'd been stabbed to death by something thin, like an ice pick, So when Mosley described the killing and said he'd shot her, that gave police the chance to decide he was just one of those crazies who wanted to take credit for more than he'd actually done. But then the coroner took another look at Annie Mae's case and realized he'd missed the bullets. Mosley was right. She had been shot. In each of his three confessions, Mosley was frank and detailed. But even though he had been accurate enough to correct an autopsy report, police wouldn't budge on the Barbara Kralik case. Their initial suspect, Alvin Mitchell, was tried. Mosley testified at his trial and repeated what he had told police, that he had killed Kralik, not Mitchell. That trial ended in a hung jury, but prosecutors didn't give up. The case was retried, 
But this time, Mosley had had a change of heart and was no longer willing to cooperate. So he refused to testify in the second trial, and Mitchell was convicted. Alvin Mitchell spent nearly 13 years in prison for a crime he likely didn't commit. When Winton Mosley described Kitty's murder, he was chillingly detached and clinical. Mosley explained he had left his wife and kids that night at home to search for a woman to kill, simply because he had an urge. He talked about it as casually as you might describe losing your wallet. He couldn't explain why he'd done it beyond that compulsive urge that drove him. He wasn't exclusively a killer either. Sometimes he'd rob people. Other times he'd burgle homes. It was weird. He didn't really need the money. He actually had a steady job as a business machine operator. Think copy machines and dictaphones. The job paid $100 a week or more than $800 a week today. It was a decent living for a guy with two kids. Sometimes the urge just overwhelmed him, he said. And this was one of those nights. He drove around looking for a woman on her own, and he spotted Kitty driving alone in her red Fiat. He followed her. She parked her car, then began walking toward the front of her building because, remember, it felt safer than taking the dark back way. This is in a neighborhood where there's very little crime. Doors were left unlocked all night long, where Girl Scouts went and sold cookies after dark by themselves, where there hadn't been a murder in years. Nobody expected any sort of crime to occur. Mosley parked too and began to follow her. She noticed him and she started to run. He ran too. She was midway through the block when he caught up with her. He plunged a knife into her back at least twice. She screamed. According to one witness, it was the loudest scream he had ever heard, could ever imagine. It woke him up from a dead sleep. Someone, a man, opened a window from above and yelled down to leave that girl alone. Mosley ran away, his hunt interrupted. He got in his car and watched and saw Kitty stagger behind the building. She was injured, so she was slow. And she probably thought the worst of the danger was over now, that her attacker had been scared off by a booming voice from an upstairs window. And this is one of the most heartbreaking things to contemplate of the whole story. This is only a few minutes after she'd first been attacked. She must have felt safe. She had tried a couple of other doors. She fell through this door and she lay at the bottom of the stairs. Stairs lead up to Carl Ross's door. And she must have felt she can wait there. She is not fatally injured at this point. She waits, Mosley waits. But Mosley wasn't done. From a news report. And he sat for 10 minutes. He expected he would hear people coming out of their houses. He thought he might hear a police siren. He said he heard none of that. He watched from his car and saw that no one had come downstairs to physically intervene. So he changed hats and climbed back out of the car. He has tried the coffee shop door locked. He's tried the the railroad station door locked. Mosley would later tell a judge that the reason for continuing after her was simple. I'd not finished what I set out to do. He found Kitty slumped on the floor inside the vestibule of a nearby apartment down the stairs from a friend of hers named Carl Ross. She was hurt, but very much alive at this point when Mosley found her. And he stabbed her again and again with his bone-handled knife. At one point he heard, he heard a door creak upstairs and he looked up and he is face to face, eye to eye with Carl Ross, who looks down at him and shuts the door. This is the witness who could have 
helped Kitty and did not. I would not claim ever that I would be a guy who, if I see someone being stabbed, that I'm going to rush in and take on the guy with the knife. But what you got to do is call the police. He didn't. He was asked later by the police why he didn't call, and he said famously, I didn't want to get involved. Then came the third attack. Kitty was sexually assaulted as she lay there dying. This was part of his M.O. He'd done this to Annie Mae Johnson, too. He first shot Annie in the stomach, then rolled her body into her apartment, assaulted her, and set her on fire. When Bill Genovese thinks back to his family learning from police what happened to Kitty, he remembers his mother screaming. And when the story came out about her agonizing death, the guilt they felt. And we all want to protect our loved ones to comfort them when they're hurting. Here, they heard about Kitty screaming for help and no one responding. They were told she died alone. It hurt so much to think about that they just stopped talking about her altogether. They couldn't reminisce in their happy memories of her when all they could think about was her horrified, lonely end. After Mosley's arrest and confessions, he was arraigned before a judge. Mosley uttered just one sentence. He said, I would like the court to appoint me a lawyer. Judge Bernard Dubin had more to say. He called him a maniac, a wild animal roaming the streets. Quote, my stomach is turning over. Fortunately for the defendant, in New York State, you were to be tried by a jury. The defendant is given every right that he does not give to his victims. The more I sit here, the more horrible this becomes. End quote. Mosley, who had fathered two young children with his wife, Elizabeth, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His court-appointed attorney, Sidney Sparrow, told jurors he was schizophrenic and in a deteriorating mental state. Mosley's wife told police that at home, her husband would just sit and stare into space. A New York Daily News story written during the trial began, quote, As emotionless and cold as one of the business machines he operated, 29-year-old Winston Mosley ticked off yesterday accounts of how he murdered a teenage girl and two women. He said he had no remorse and no feeling of guilt then or now, end quote. The lawyer pointed to Mosley's remorselessness as proof that he was no longer the, quote, moderately normal person, end quote, he had been up until a year earlier. Sparrow asked, did he have free will to enable him not to do what he did? Insanity pleas generally don't sit well with juries, and this one didn't land either. A jury of 11 men and one woman took just 45 minutes to find Mosley guilty. He was sentenced to death in the electric chair. The judge, a guy who didn't support the death penalty, said, quote, When I see this monster, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch on him myself, end quote. Two years later, however, Mosley learned his life would be spared. The New York Court of Appeals ruled that the lower court should have allowed evidence related to Mosley's mental health during the sentencing phase. His sentence was commuted to life in prison. Some surely questioned that move when, the very next year, Mosley cut himself with a bottle at the state prison in Attica, and the wound was bad enough that he needed minor surgery at a local hospital, where he managed to slug a guard and escape. For three days, he terrorized the Buffalo area. He tied up one couple, raped the wife, stole their car, then found another woman, 
held her and her infant daughter hostage for hours until an FBI agent managed to talk him into surrendering. That was the last people heard about Mosley for a good while. But they didn't forget about the case. A famous murder case 50 years ago that came to symbolize a world where people didn't care when bad things happened and they didn't get involved. It's been 50 years since that article shocked the nation. Now Fox Files takes you back to the crime scene and shows you what really happened on that infamous night. Kitty Genovese became more than a murder victim. She became a nationwide symbol. In 1968, two sociologists who had learned about Kitty Genovese's murder found themselves fascinated by the neighbors' inaction. So they decided to conduct some experiments. John Darley and Bib Latine set up a scenario in which college students were talking to each other over an intercom with someone they thought was a fellow student. In reality, they were actually talking to a recording of an actor. The actor acted out an emergency over the intercom, an epileptic seizure. Somebody be giving a little, little help here. I'm having a real problem, problem right now. Help me out. What the sociologists learned is that if the students hearing this fake emergency thought they were the only other person on the phone, they rushed to help. If they had been told others were on the phone with them, they were slower to respond. And there was a direct correlation. The more witnesses there were, the less likely they were to help. It was known as the bystander effect, or the Genovese effect. The impact of the reporting on the bystander effect is really immeasurable. It sparked articles and academic studies and discussion groups. It became a regular plot device in cop shows. If you've ever watched a show with a cop saying her neighbors heard her being attacked but didn't want to get involved, this case is the reason. In the 1980s comic The Watchmen, the narrator and anti-hero Rorschach is initially inspired to vigilantism because when he was a man called Walter Kovacs, he knew Kitty, and he read about her death in the newspaper. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. Rorschach believes there are no shades of gray when it comes to morality. This is symbolized by his black and white ink blot mask. And all of this started because of the outrage his character felt when he learned that Kitty's neighbors refused to help her in her dying moments. Kitty's story is even indirectly referenced in sitcoms now and then. Remember the series finale of Seinfeld, when the group sees a guy being carjacked at gunpoint, but they do nothing? Come on, come on! Uh, that's a shame. Alright, I'm gonna call NBC. Alright, hold it right there. What? You're under arrest. Under arrest? What for? Article 223-7 of the Lakeland County Penal Code. What? No, no, we didn't do anything. That's exactly right. The law requires you to help or assist anyone in danger as long as it's reasonable to do so. I never heard of that. It's new. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. That might have been a new law in that show, but in the real world, Good Samaritan Laws began popping up nationwide in the years after Kitty's death in hopes of holding people accountable for turning their backs on someone in need. John Solomon again. For a half century, 
So many have been chewing on this story. Journalists, academics, screenwriters, musicians, graphic novelists, an opera. Four weeks ago, Girls does an episode called Hello Kitty based on Kitty's Genovese's murder. Eight weeks ago, Law & Order SVU does an episode based on Kitty Genovese's murder. It took place 52 years ago, but they're still it's still inspiring contemporary dramas. The truth is, all of our lives have been touched by the murder of Kitty Genovese, even people who still to this day have never heard her name. At the time of her attack, 911 didn't exist. Some cities had systems in place to dispatch officers quickly to emergencies, but that wasn't true for all cities wasn't true in New York, for example. And how it worked was completely inconsistent. If you were in a city that had some sort of quick response setup, quite a few of them didn't allow for anonymous tips, which meant if you called police, you were getting yourself enmeshed in whatever situation you were calling about. Some people don't trust law enforcement enough to do that. I mean, remember, this is 1964. Things were chaotic. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated less than six months earlier. The public's relationship with police was pretty tense. I mean, the month prior to Kitty's stabbing, Black and Puerto Rican groups boycotted schools in New York City to protest racial segregation. The controversial Civil Rights Act of 1964 was on the cusp of being passed. And it was becoming increasingly clear that the U.S. would enter the Vietnam War. Kitty's girlfriend, Marianne, talked to author Kevin Cook about life at that time. She talked about the fear that you have. There's still, if you're walking around the city in 1964, where you see that, that yellow and red sign, remember with the triangles? That's a fallout shelter. That's where you're going to go when the bombs come. And the bombs might come at any moment. Talk about an edgy period. Also, an interview in The Witness highlighted another reason some of the neighbors might have been leery of people in power. This neighborhood... Back in the 60s, I remember a lot of the older people, they had numbers on their arm. They were in concentration camps. That type of a person might not want to get involved with authorities because mm -hmm. of what happened with the Nazis. So, you know, you can't blame people for being afraid. With the benefit of hindsight, we know now that the apathy reported was both true and overstated. Dozens of people heard a woman scream in the night. Objectively, I think it's fair to say that they didn't do enough to intervene. But it seems that the reports of utter indifference being the only response weren't quite right. For starters, most people had no idea how serious the attack was. And Kitty screamed, he stabbed me, but few people actually made out the words. It was 3 a.m. Most of them had been sleeping. And the people who did make out the words weren't sure it was for real. And some thought they were hearing a drunken brawl or a fight between a man and his girl, which, sadly, was considered none of my business by most people at the time. When you live above a bar, sometimes you're going to hear weird sounds in the middle of the night. More to the point, though, a couple of people actually did try something. The police logs from the night are handwritten, which means this was a human-run operation. There was no automatic logging of the incoming calls. And at least one resident insists he knows someone called right after the first attack. As Kevin Cook said, There was one young man named Michael Hoffman 
who swears that his father did call the police. Michael Hoffman woke his dad up and said, look at that girl out there, Mosley is gone. Samuel Hoffman comes out and looks out the window and sees Kitty down there, calls the police. I cannot prove this, but I have a sworn affidavit to that effect from young man Michael Hoffman. My dad called the police, said there's a girl staggering around out there, you better send a police car. Well, he's on hold, he's on hold, nothing happens. So why did we never hear about this before? Well, it might be because it didn't quite fit the narrative. The next day, by the way, Michael Hoffman will uh, watch his dad tell the policemen who show up, why weren't you there last night? And the policemen tell him that we're not going to need you. Uh, You know, we've got enough, and they just gave him a dirty look. Now, if you wonder what kind of a witness Michael Hoffman might be, you never know whether a witness is reliable or unreliable. Another important detail left out of the narrative was that Kitty didn't die alone. I mean, this was an aspect of the story that horrified her friends and family and fueled decades of guilt and despair. And the story they understood to be true was that she had bled out alone after screaming in vain for help. In 2014, a New York Times reporter finally decided to double-check the original story and found there was a woman named Sophia Farrar who could set the record straight. Sophia had been friends with Kitty. According to her son, Michael, who was just seven when Kitty was killed, the two women would have coffee together and share stories about their lives. Well, Sophia's phone rang in the middle of the night, and a neighbor told her Kitty was in the hallway bleeding. Sophia flew out the door, not even waiting for her husband to get dressed and join her, and found Kitty still alive. Sophia cradled her friend and told her, help is on the way. She could feel blood oozing from the wounds in Kitty's back, and she could see her friend's face growing pale. Help was on the way, but Sophia knew it might not arrive in time. The story's still tragic, but at least Kitty wasn't alone. Now, this information wasn't hidden or unknown to police. Sophia actually testified to all of this in Mosley's trial. Journalists must have heard it in the courtroom, but by then... The apathy narrative had spread like wildfire, and Sophia's tale never made it into print. It's hard to know if the story of Kitty's death would have still had the same impact if people had known the full truth right away. I mean, I hope it would have, because even though the particulars are, I guess, better than what we knew at first, the truth is neighbors heard screams and they could have helped, but they didn't. Kitty's case served as a reminder that we have a responsibility to help each other. I mean, when you hear someone scream, you're supposed to do something. I mean, check it out. Call the police. Anything. Maybe it'll turn out to be nothing and you'll feel like you wasted somebody's time, but what's the harm in making sure, right? Winston Mosley eventually adopted the belief that his murder of Kitty Genovese bettered society. He tried to argue his way out of prison, saying as much. He wrote a letter to the editor to the New York Times saying that what he'd done in the long run was a service to society because he had alerted society to the fact that people need to come to the aid of uh, their fellows when they really need help. He also pointed out that, you know, it's, it's horrible for the victim for a few minutes, but for me, when you get caught, we're talking about the rest of your life. It's an interesting approach to argue not that you have seen the light, but that your crime helped society see the light. And if Kitty had been his only victim, maybe it would have worked. But he didn't just kill Kitty. 
He admitted he killed Barbara Kralik and Annie Mae Johnson, too, two women whose deaths were just as important to their loved ones, despite not being as widely publicized as Kitty's. Even if you set aside Barbara Kralik because another man was convicted for it, there's no argument that Johnson's death inadvertently bettered society. And what about the woman Mosley raped when he escaped from prison? In the end, the creative approach didn't matter. Mosley's logic never swayed the parole board, while Kitty's name and story have lived on, even if the details have been a bit flawed. Mosley died a nobody behind bars in 2016 at the age of 81. For this episode, the documentary The Witness was a huge help, and it's definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. I also read journalist A.M. Rosenthal's book, 38 Witnesses, The Kitty Genovese Case, and Kevin Cook's Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America. And also, I have a headache from all the newspaper stories I read spanning from 1964 through this year, which is when Sophia Farrar, the woman who rushed to Kitty's side, died in September. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 